Steve Martin was my first celebrity crush. It concerned my parents until I crushed on dead celebrities like Dean Martin. Those Martins, they wanted me to go back to Steve Martin. So why did I like Steve Martin? He was funny. A legend that all the comedians seem to be influenced by. Comedy goes far with me. His hair had been white and gray since he was a young man, giving him a look that said, you don't know how old I am. He was a diverse man, capable of depth. He wrote with such beautiful cutting precision. He played an instrument, multi-talented, smart. As some have described him, a renaissance man. He would surely wait for me to grow up, right? He got married soon after my crush formed, thus killed my obsession. But the appreciation stayed. And I thought I was Steve Martin obsessed? Huh. When I observed my next guest office, I knew I had barely scratched the surface. I knew this man was Steve's greatest fan. I was interviewing for an internship in Oklahoma City. I got a tour of their now old building. Somehow I had never really seen Lucas Ross before. He did the morning show on Freedom 43 and I watched the evening news. The one thing that was special about that tour was walking by Lucas's very original office. His whole door was painted Kermit the Frog green. In fact, it was painted as Kermit the Frog. It was open and inside was Steve Martin's posters everywhere and all sorts of memorabilia. Even a Carl Reiner one, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Not his most famous, but one I found a weird appreciation for. In that moment, I hoped to get the internship just so I could meet whoever had this obsessive interest and was able to have many obsessive interests because I knew he had to be a wild and crazy guy or at least unique because let's face it many of us fit in and don't really stand out but we are drawn to exuberant personalities that do what drew me to both Martin and Lucas is that they are both wacky but smart so high praise but one that I believe is well deserved Lucas plays not one but two unusual instruments banjo and also accordion the banjo, of course, after his beloved Steve Martin. He has starred in local plays, he's been in small films, has banjo albums, works at the Banjo Museum, he does a morning show in Oklahoma City, and has worked on a funny comedy called Lazy Circles that I hope someday is picked up by someone. In addition to all those creative endeavors, he has a loving wife and kids. His dad is a beekeeper from a small town called Minko. 
So welcome Lucas Ross here to chat with me about Steve Martin and his career. When okay. I first met you, uh, actually I had just walked by your office and it was full of Steve Martin. Where did your love of Steve Martin come from? It's weird. I have a, thinking back to my first, the first time I ever saw Steve Martin, I didn't like him. I thought he was mean and I thought he was rude and I did not like him at all because the first time I saw him was in the 1979 movie, the Muppet movie, and he was Kermit and Piggy's waiter on their first date. Now, it's one of my favorite scenes ever. Not long after did I love him, but at, when I was a child and saw that, I was like, why is this guy? And the whole idea was he was just this making fun of the rude waiter that just, I don't know, it was just a funny bit. And uh, it epitomized what Steve Martin's material was back at the time. And I did not like him. I thought he was a rude, mean guy that was being so rude to Miss Piggy and Kermit. That, that scene is so funny um, now, but it's, uh, it's funny because Kermit and Steve Martin are kind of my two heroes. And they crossed over there at the beginning. But I really got into Steve Martin a few years later when um, I think it was the Channel 43 Sunday afternoon movie out of my grandparents' house. And they were showing The Jerk. And I just remember walking in and seeing my dad rolling, literally sitting on the floor watching The Jerk and laughing so hard at him trying to dance with his family. As, uh, he did not know he was not born an African-American child. He didn't realize that he was adopted. And it shows him trying to famously dance and not have any rhythm with his family. And my dad was just laughing so much at the physical comedy. And I was like, I think there was something that resonated there. Because every kid, I mean, I wanted to make my dad laugh. Um, I could make my mom laugh. She was always there. She, she laughed at a lot of my stuff. Maybe a little too much. But my dad, I was like, oh, that's a real... And I was like, if this guy can make my dad laugh, then I want to be like this guy. And I think that's how it really started it. And then uh, years later, I discovered some of his uh, comedy records at my friend's house. And just, I don't know, I just he was so weird and different at the time and the joke was not about politics it wasn't about anything that was going on at that time it was just at him he was the he was the funny and i really liked that about it so a lot of your paths intersected so i, I muppets came first then steve martin did your love of the <laughs> banjo also kind of stem off of steve martin yeah a little bit of both you know when i heard kermit play the banjo in the muppet movie there's just something about that sound of that instrument and the melody and those notes that start off that song that's just so beautiful. And I just remember as a child, like, I like how this sounds. Like, what is making this sound? It wasn't years later that I ever would get a banjo. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I really liked it. And then, uh, then like, later on, whenever I started really getting into Steve Martin's comedy when I was, like, in middle school, <laughs> where the age most kids should be listening to that comedy, uh, I guess <laughs> he... He used the banjo kind of in between, and kind of as a comedy prop, but really played it very well. And uh, and now he kind of he's just blown up in the bluegrass uh, scene over the past oh, over a decade of doing some really intricate and serious um, and award-winning uh, banjo stuff. <laughs> That's my technical term for it: is banjo, banjo stuff. stuff. Yeah. But I liked it. I liked how the banjo sounded in, in any of the style. I always thought it just had this brightness to it. And I've heard different, uh, Bela Fleck, and I've heard Steve Martin, it's di different people say different things about the banjo. It's like it can strike somebody's ear and it can hit something in your soul that you just like, I, I like this sound, I like what it is. And, um, and they just can't get enough of it. And I'm one of those people. I just really like it. Uh, it, it can be used to, it was like, well, it's, everything sounds so happy on a banjo. Steve Martin used to joke about that. And he's like, you just can't, 
sing a sad song playing the banjo and he sing oh grief and death and sorrow and murder and and still playing this happy banjo but the truth is and later on he went back to say actually you can play some very melancholy sounds and some very soft and and emotional uh things and performers now like Rhiannon Giddens uh who's an amazing performer he's playing some very hauntingly and beautiful songs of early early banjo days we're going off now i'm just going deep into banjo oh no that's fine (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I just love. I always liked that instrument, and never did I ever think I'd ever play one growing up. Uh, and then never thought that I would end up working <laughs> at a, at the American Banjo Museum, uh, which is where I am talking to you from as we speak, surrounded by 351 gorgeous banjos. <laughs> so obviously you love banjos, but where did the accordion come into play? The accordion, yes. Okay, so that. <laughs> So I loved Weird Al Yankovic as a kid. It was like, I think I, I stumbled upon Dr. Demento's radio show. It was on 107.7 on Sunday nights in my state, and that's where we got it. And Dr. Demento, I just heard these weird, this weird, I was just flipping through the radio. I was given my grandfather's old radio and record player setup, and uh, I was listening to, I just flipped through the radio and found Dr. Demento, and then I started listening to Weird Al and just got all into Weird Al. A good friend of mine named Doug Thompson is really responsible for introducing me to the Steve Martin comedy and to Weird Al and, and that kind of stuff. He and I were just, you know, that, that friend that's just like, and I don't know where he got, where he found all this stuff from his parents or what, but um, but yeah, Weird Al was a big influence, so I loved the accordion. And I was at a town garage, so I'd been, it was my first summer really saving money. I think I was in sixth grade or so, fifth grade. In our town in Minko, Oklahoma, the land of milk and honey, they had a town-wide garage sale. They still do it once a year, and everybody has their garage sales going on, the whole town. And, and if you lived out in the country, you could come to, like, the school and set up all your stuff in the in the parking lot at this. I mean, it was crazy. It's a neat small town. And I remember riding my bike, and that was, like, the day. I was, like, I had some money in my pocket. I'd been mowing lawns all summer, and I had, like, 50 bucks, and downtown the he was actually currently the mayor of minko he was selling two old accordions that he bought for either his daughter or his wives and they never played them and they were all old and dusty and uh, i could afford the smaller one so i bought it and i came home and i remember my dad was like does that thing have a volume control was his first question (laughs) and it did not it also had a broken the way that accordion works it has bellows and air that moves through it to play and when you push the keys down or the buttons uh it opens up the you know, and, and air goes through it, much like a harmonica or any kind of, you know, the air has to be going through. Well, the pad, the pad of the E-flat button had fallen off inside the thing, and it just constantly played E-flat, just oh. like whenever it opened or closed. So I played by ear, and I just learned to play all my songs in E-flat, and I would sit on the backyard, and it sounded like bagpipes mixed with accordion, and it was awful, I'm sure. But uh, finally, we opened it up, and my mom figured out a way to fix the pad. But that was my introduction to the accordion, and uh, I used it as a prop, too, for a long time. And then I acquired a banjo. Somebody loaned me a banjo when I was, like, in seventh grade. So I had these banjos and accordions, but I didn't really know how to play. It was before the Internet and YouTube, and uh, I lived out in Minko. There weren't teachers there, Um, and if there were, it would be – I don't know where I'd find those teachers. So I just kind of had had them as props. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I – if you want to call it that – that I met – a banjo, an accordion instructor named Dick Albreski, who's one of the greatest accordion players. He lives in Oklahoma, and he saw me once, and he's like, "I see you use this accordion. Do you want me to actually teach you how to play it?" And I took lessons and uh, got kind of decent at it. 
but then uh, we had our first kid, and it's hard to practice accordion in a small house with a baby, so I stopped practicing, and it kind of went by the wayside. I got a slightly quieter instrument, and I went and got a, a legit banjo. It was still loud. So uh, I've always been annoying people, whatever, whether I'm <laughs> playing in the backyard as a kid in all E-flats or what. But anyway, um, it's something that I used as a prop for a long time, and then I try to skillfully I, – I, I use it with respect, and I, I love those instruments. It's it, Accordion and banjos are always kind of those funny, cartoonish instruments that you see in comic strips. I remember Garfield always, like, throwing accordions out in the – it was just like a punchline when I was a kid. And so I liked playing the things that always stood out. And now the respect and the, 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 the banjo itself has so much history, American history. It grew up with America that sometimes I, I don't feel worthy to play it, I'll be honest, because it's such an amazing uh, – there's so many amazing players out there that are very good and very legitimate. And and uh, so I try to – yeah, I still do got comedy with it, but I, I'm the butt of the joke. The instrument is not – what players do you really r respect? Um, banjo. Well, I mean, Steve Martin was kind of, he was my gateway drug to the banjo, if you want to say that. It's the only drug I've ever tried was the banjo. Uh, Steve Martin uh, is how I kind of learned a lot of it. But Tony Trishka, who's an amazing performer and teacher, he he's great. Um, I really like Bela Fleck. I love the Kruger brothers. Yannis Kruger is an, an incredible it's it's he brings this classical um style to it that i love and mark johnson who's um steve martin's he he teaches and works with steve martin has created a style called clawgrass that i really like um but there's so many known pekelny of uh punch brothers he's really oh, they're so good and so intricate and sometimes i listen to these guys and it encourages me to practice and other times i listen i'm like i'm just gonna quit there's no way i'm ever gonna be uh an ounce of how good they are. They're so effortless, and uh, it's amazing. Another great banjo player on the tenor side. I play five string. Most people now consider when they think of banjo music, they think of you know doing banjos that style, Earl Scruggs style. Um... Ring ring. Lucas got a phone call, and well, I just am pointing out this fact because I reference it at the end. And also because there were about three instances where a phone call was interrupting a train of thought and something would either be repeated or not make a whole lot of sense. I did my best to edit a complete thought together. Those are five-string players, but then um, the, uh, the four-string tenor players, which was so big in, in the early 19... Hundreds, especially the jazz, as a jazz style started to uh, become so popular, that four-string style of banjo playing, the Hello My Baby, Hello My Honey, that's so, so fast, Eddie Peabody, those guys played so well. Um, Johnny Byer is our executive director at the Banjo Museum, and he's one of the, he's one of the greatest players uh, alive, and he's, um, he's incredible to watch these guys play these different styles. And it's such a vers versatile instrument that you can, you can take – three of the same banjos that are made exactly the same and they will all sound different have a different life with them because of the way that the wood the metals the the banjo heads the tightening and stuff there's so many variables um there's it's such an interesting instrument i never knew that i was just playing with this thing that looks so funny and you know i want to stand and hold it like steve martin and that's what i did when i was a kid i didn't know 
the responsibility that I had in my hands. So I'm still learning. I hope I'm answering your questions okay. I'm, you, I ramble a lot. Oh, no, you are fine. I mean, that's perfect for a podcast. It's just okay. talking. <laughs> <laughs> you work, so you work at the Banjo Museum. I know you uh, featured Steve Martin. How responsible were you for that exhibit? I, so I've worked off and on with the Banjo Museum. I, I'm down here, uh, part of the staff now, but I was just kind of doing some promotional stuff, and I would do some shows here. When Steve Martin exhibit came in 2015, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, I was uh, so excited. I was trying to help supply any kind of, I had collected this stuff forever, um, uh, pictures and stuff, but Johnny, um, our director who also, he, he puts all the exhibits together and does so much. Everything you see, every light that's aimed at everything, uh, printed off, everything, he does it all. And uh, he, I, I, I had to just stay out of his way because he knows exactly what he's doing. I did supply a couple of T-shirts, some concert T-shirts that I have. I actually have them hanging up here. I'll show you. But, like, uh, these are framed concert shirts. Oh, my from, gosh. Uh, Born standing up pictures. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Well, yeah, that's his. And that's his yeah, album, the wild and uh, crazy guy. Wild and crazy guy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Johnny was so cool to involve me because he knew that I'm a fan. And it's... I, I, I've talked about it so much, and it's been kind of some shtick about, like, I always say I, I got to meet him, and I got his picture, and I also got his autograph on the bottom of the restraining order, and that kind of joke, but I respectfully, he's really been a big influence in my comedy and stuff, but uh, but it, I play, I I camp it up a lot for, uh, for the TV stuff that I do. It's just become kind of my shtick that I like the Muppets and Steve Martin, and I don't know. Um, the exhibit was so cool. We had three of his banjos, his original banjo that he had when he got when he was 18. He and uh, John McEwen of Negri Dirt Band got banjos together. Here's a picture I'm showing for you. Uh, so here's his original banjo that he had, uh, and he would sit in his parents' car and learn. And with the windows rolled up in hot summer days in California, and uh, try to learn the banjo, and uh, it just became part of the thing that he did. And so people, a lot of people are like, oh, they either still don't know that he plays, or they're surprised to find out, or they think he just picked it up lately. But he's been doing that since the beginning. Um, he's been playing it for a long time, and uh, that exhibit was really cool. So we had that banjo. We had the banjo he got when he was on The Muppet Show and Wild and Crazy Guy, that banjo, and then another uh, another one of his. So it was really cool. We had that for a year, and a lot of memorabilia, and a lot of neat stuff on display for that. Um, and, and an exclusive interview, Johnny got to do a sit-down interview with Steve Martin that's still on our YouTube page, and uh, it was a really candid and neat interview to hear him talk so specifically. It's worth a, a watch or a listen to hear him talk so specifically about what, why he loves the instrument and how he th- what he thinks about it and how he writes his songs and stuff. So while it's weird to, to think that I li- work at a museum, it's like it doesn't fit under the title of museum to me it's like working for the instrument and it's this haven where people like steve martin and tony trishka and bela fleck all these guys know about this place and this is this pinnacle of the banjo world people come to steve hasn't been here yet but we're hoping to get him here but um kermit the frog was here Mm -hmm. kermit the frog was here a few weeks ago matt vogel the voice of kermit and now big bird uh was actually here a couple weeks ago and got to tour the place we got kermit's uh, signature and uh, we have some fun kermit news that's coming out soon of what they're going to do with us. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's a it's a total dream come true. I'm getting to work mm-hmm. at 
with the, around the instrument that I love with with good people that that love it, um, and I'm getting to work with in a way Kermit the Frog and Steve Martin, all my little heroes growing up. I never would have thought that in my home state that I would get to accomplish this. So I'm very lucky every day. That is amazing. Now, um, did you encounter anybody that had any personal experiences with Steve Martin while that um, salute was going on? Okay, that was so cool. So I did a, a couple of performances called A Salute to Steve Martin that wasn't affiliated with him, and it wasn't necessarily like an uh, impersonation-type show, like one of those things. I, I did kind of a presentation. I played some of his songs and talked about his comedy and kind of his... Uh, love affair with the banjo and the instrument, how he used it and played things throughout all the way up to the current things he's doing with Edie Brickell and the, uh, Bright Star and stuff. My wife, Aubrey, even got up and sang a couple of those songs and everybody then was like, well, she's a real talent. What have you been doing? Uh, hiding her this whole time. I was like, oh, I, didn't, I had to twist her arm to get up here and perform. She's, so, she's the real talent. It's true. But um, when I was doing one of those shows, it, what's so cool about the museum is in Oklahoma or any home state that has something like this, the locals don't know about it or they don't notice it or they see it but they're like oh yeah I'll, i don't know i'll get down to it I th they think everybody has a banjo museum but outside of our state it's a it's this beacon it's this thing and people will come here with two goals is maybe to see the memorial museum and then to see the banjo museum the banjo is not necessarily it's not an oklahoma instrument it has a uh, a history with oklahoma and such but since half of it was it was just Oklahoma was centralized and didn't have a music identity that was so ingrained as other places. If the Banjo Museum was put in New Orleans, it would be specifically associated with the, that jazz Dixieland-type style. If it was in New York, it would be a certain style, in California, different stuff. So Oklahoma's kind of the central idea, and, uh, and it had a history of it with swing music um, from Oklahoma, Texas area. So... All that to say is, people were visiting. So I had this big turnout for the Steve Martin concert, and there were people that just were in town, just happened to come to the museum that day. And afterwards, this woman said, um, it's so weird, we saw that they had a Steve Martin exhibit when we got in here, and then you were doing this show, because I used to work at Disneyland with him when he was a kid. Because Steve worked at Disneyland from the time he was 10 to, up to 18, and he started off like selling uh, flyers and uh, your programs up front, a little flat hat and vest, and then eventually started working around the vaudeville guys, learned the magic tricks and worked in the magic shop and stuff like that. And I think she knew whenever he was working at the magic shop. And so as she was saying that, somebody else was there saying, like, we went to the high school with Steve Martin. There were two people, two groups that were visiting. Uh, one still lived in California and one didn't anymore, but they had this cool connection. So it was so weird. They didn't even know that the museum had a Steve Martin exhibit. They just came in to, to check out the, the museum. And so uh, it was cool to hear them talk about that, that they knew they knew him and they went to high school with Steve Martin and John McEwen. And uh, it, was so, it was so fun. So there's been some neat connections like that. And it's just kind of cool to see how the banjo brings people together is the way I look at it. <laughs> that is amazing. It does bring people together. Wow. They, were, they didn't know each other beforehand? No, no, they didn't even, they just happened to be visiting, and then uh, after the show, they were telling me, like, because I was talking about how he worked at Disney and different things like that, and they're like, yeah, I actually worked there with him, and then somebody else said, oh, I went to high school at the same time as him, and he was in, he was a year ahead of me or, or something like that. It was just such a weird, weird connection there, and, and it's neat, too, because I've, I've talked with different people um, 
and, and local people here that saw him whenever he was on tour. Uh, I've had people give me ticket stubs from when they saw him in 1978 when he came to uh, Lloyd Noble. And um, That's and, before and you so, were born, right? Do what? That was before you were born, right? Before I was born. I know I missed it. I, <laughs> wow. I was, born, I was born way too late. But <laughs> I, I, I've got the chance to, to visit briefly and meet him a couple uh-huh. times in um, – probably and hopefully forgettable experiences for him because I don't, I, don't, I know I probably was falling over my own words I've, uh, as, as many times as I've got to work or, or meet celebrities or something like that with what I've got to been privileged to, to do for jobs I feel like I'm pretty at ease about it but it was a little bit like this is so cool I, I've really looked up to this guy since I was a kid and I didn't. You think I would have had my words together better? I think I was just mumbling weird oddities. But um, anyway, we're hoping that we're actually the museum's doing a. Well, this is kind of an exclusive. I don't know when this is going to come out, but I think we'll, you'll be able to include this. In September, Steve is doing a concert for us in New York, at Town Hall. They're like on Broadway. Steve Martin is going to do his, he's been doing the Banjo Excellence Award mm-hmm. for uh, several years. He used to present it on David Letterman. And uh, since that show's off, they've been kind of looking for an outlet to announce this award. And uh, they are going to do a concert. The American Banjo Museum presents Steve Martin and the Steve Martin Excellence for Banjo and Bluegrass will be in September. And so he will host and play along with some of his other uh, winners of the past. And he will um, announce the new winner of that title. It comes with a, with a, a cash um, award for continuing in what they're doing professionally with the banjo. And it's a really esteemed and cool uh, award. He's got a lot of great banjo players on his board that help make the selection of that. And Anyway, it's just so cool. So uh, that will be in New York in September. And I'll know more details about that hopefully soon. <laughs> it's uh, it's so cool. I'm like, this is this is so cool. So I, I'm excited. I get to do that. And then I'll tell you another exclusive, okay? So another thing I do, so with the shows we've got at the Banjo Museum, we have this stage, and it was originally built to be a Shakey's Pizza Parlor room, reminiscent of the, reminiscent of the old Shakey's Pizza places. And if you had a Shakey's, you had to have uh, a banjo player. That was, a, I think, a rule for a lot of the restaurants. You, the franchises had to have a banjo player. It was part of the atmosphere. And so a lot of guys played the banjo. It gave a lot of people, a lot of 1920s jazz-style players, a lot of jobs for a long time. And uh, so our, our, our room was built like that, but now it's transitioned into your father's mustache, which was another club that it utilized the banjo a lot in its presentation. But we have this neat little stage and tables and uh, mm-hmm. do events there. And uh, I do some kid shows there, too. We have a lot of different presentations there, but the things I do are some kid shows, and I'm developing a an educational, an early educational program for the roots of the banjo to tell the, the history and the story of the banjo. Um, a lot of people don't know that it's uh, it, it it comes from Africa. Um, early African American uh, who were enslaved had these styled of early banjos, and it kind of developed over those early years of America, and over the, that uh, 400 years, it developed into the instrument that we recognize today. And so just like America, it has ups and downs and tough, uh, tough things, but it has been bringing people together as well, not to just positively wash the whole thing, but it, um, it became America's instrument. It was very, very, very popular. And uh, in that time, these amazing instruments are being built and made and manufactured. And then by the 
by the World War um, II, it was like disappeared. Nobody was playing it. And then this resurgence of the bluegrass and the, the country style using it kind of came back. I'm telling a very, very quick watered down <laughs> yes. and short history of it. Come to the museum. Anyway, for, I'm developing For banjo uh, dummies uh, like me. <laughs> no, uh, I'm still figuring it out. I'm hoping I'm getting all my facts right. Don't, please don't. Uh, <laughs> They say. I'm sure um, you know more than I than I do. So. <laughs> I'm just reading plaques as I talk to you that I'm hoping I'm reading. No, um, <laughs> but the uh, so I do I, I do kind of a presentation of the history, the art, and the importance of this instrument, um, good and bad, and, and a little of the ugly. Uh, and I, and I, I, I try, I'm building a, a curriculum to show to early education kids, first through third, and then fourth through fifth and sixth. To uh, show the significance of it, and to to uh, to know like where this instrument came from, and as it plays a part in our history, and also as schools are always putting arts on the line, you know, it's hard to have those outlets for kids. So we're trying to supply that. That commercial you just heard was strategically placed. You see, my microphone, my fancy mic, broke down after the first thirty minutes. I didn't notice it because the light was on. So, I always have backups, so if the quality goes down, that's why. So that's part of my job here. And with that, I have this presentation that goes with it, and it's like a video series that, um, this is so cool. So, thankfully, and so grateful to the Jim Henson Company and to Disney, we have uh, got Kermit the Frog to be in this video with me. So I'm getting to get to perform with Kermit and talk about the banjo. Kermit interrupts my presentation and tells me, hey, Lucas Frog's also with the banjo. And uh, it, it sets off this whole thing about how I didn't really know there's a whole lot more to the banjo than I thought. And uh, then he kind of pops along and, and uh, helps, you know, uh, helps me see a few things throughout it and has some funny stuff. So we got to work on that. I got to work with the Muppet writers and uh, Matt Vogel who is here and he's just so great there. Um, that's going to come together soon. So that's an exclusive. I, I don't know when uh, that will be finished, but we uh, will be premiering that here within the next school year. Uh, maybe this midsummer we'll have it, but uh, it's going to be really cool. It's really cool because uh, we're not, we're, we're the only museum like this in the world and it's neat to have, and we're grateful for uh, the Disney people. Thank you, Debbie. If you're out there listening, Debbie <laughs> McClellan from the Disney company for allowing uh, Kermit to, to work with us on this because he's a busy frog. <laughs> he is a busy frog. But, uh, but I'm excited, and it's my dream come true. I never would have thought, like, it's this full circle thing. Like, the, the one guy who first introduced me to the banjo, I'm going to get to work with to, uh, to show kids uh, this instrument and to launch them into finding out some things about our history and, and other mm -hmm. things. So it's uh, really cool. I'm very, very grateful and proud uh, of that. If you have any control over the date when it's released, it has to be Tuesday. Teach me something Tuesday. Oh no! <laughs> it's teach me something Tuesday. Teach me something Tuesday. Teach me something Tuesday. Teach me something Tuesday. That's what you get. That so today Emily was gone and we had Damien Lotus, who's the uh, another meteorologist, was trying to sing and it was so bad. So it was great. <laughs> I was like, oh. yeah, they're still trying to pull that. Uh. Cause it's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> I it's addictive, and I people stop me wherever I am and sing it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
don't hate it as much as I have to on TV, but if right. I liked it, it just wouldn't work, you know? Right. It's like comedy. You have to have it, well, mm-hmm. so. Gotta have that tension. Um, uh-huh. So, you are, you've had inspired, you've been inspired by Steve Martin. Has Steve made you discover other comedians? Did Steve make me discover other comedians? That's, I remember taping a, some video, or some, a video of some special that came on in the, in the early 90s, I think, that just kind of highlighted a bunch of comedy greats, and it showed some, what Steve Martin did, it showed his King Tut, and just when he exploded for being just crazy and wacky and just where we laugh at him. And with that, I started to pay attention to other comedians. But he always kind of stood apart to me. He wasn't the first comedian I ever knew of, and he wasn't uh, the, well, the last one, but I, he just always stood out as you're just laughing at him. I think that's why I always like that movie, The Jerk, because you're stuck with this the hero in this character is a, a silly buffoon that you're just having to laugh at. And there wasn't, I can't remember a time where there were other movies like that that had the lead character was like, well, this is who we've hitched our wagon to and we got to follow him. Um, and, and since the days of Charlie Chaplin and early comedy, and it's weird to kind of say that because Charlie Chaplin was kind of, he was a, you know, this little scamp that you're kind of following and he's clumsy or he's silly, but you like him, he has this charm about him. Up until like '79, and I could be wrong. I'm, maybe I'm just not thinking hard enough about other movies. But for for me, I was thinking like there really wasn't a time that you you'd have your sidekick characters that acted silly, or you had these other one-off offshoot guys. Because it's hard. It's hard to make. That's why it was never like you know you had the next door neighbor, the Kramer to Jerry Seinfeld. If the whole show was about Kramer, that's not as entertaining as wondering what's this goofy guy doing over to the side. So to make it work with a centralized character that's the funny wacky buffoon. It's harder than it than it looks, and well, he had Carl Reiner helping, and they were writing every day on the way down the script. He and Carl Reiner and uh, Carl Gottlieb uh, wrote that script, and, and I think another. But uh, they would every day they would write, and their goal was to have a laugh per page, a laugh every page. In most movies, uh, a page equals about a minute, and so their goal was to have a, a laugh per minute was the idea, and it was so cool to see that and. Uh, it, I, I think that was just kind of inspired me in the way that I did my comedy. I never wanted to be mean. I never wanted to be cynical and hurtful and make somebody else feel bad or even do a character that was doing that. It, I would always make myself not just self-deprecating, but is that the right word? Yeah. Self def. It's not self-defecating. <laughs> Definitely self- not self-deprecating. <laughs> that would be that. a very stinky form of comedy. <laughs> kind. There are those comedians who do that. I'm not that desperate. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe I will be. I don't know. Maybe I am. <laughs> but I. But but uh, I think that's really what resonated with me. But uh, I mean, there's other comedians I really like. Currently, Mike Birbiglia and uh, Jim Gaffigan, and I like those uh, guys. I've got a great Jim Gaffigan story. Oh yeah. Do you want to hear it? I do want to hear it. So in the early 2000s, it was 2003, I interned in Hollywood at that 70s show, which was mm-hmm. a show that was not shot in the 70s. It was shot in the 2000s. Is Hope, how old are you? you um, I love that 70s show. It's one of my favorites. I was in elementary school at the time, but I heard a cool fifth grader talking about it, and I was like, love this show. See, you're a connoisseur of television. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know great things that most people of your uh, age 
don't from the Mary Tyler Moores and Dick Van Dykes and all that. So I'm, I'm in good company here. Um, so I'm working at that 70s show, and uh, there's <laughs> – on uh, we taped on – they taped on Fridays, and I had permission. I worked in post-production. So I my job – essentially my biggest responsibility was every week if there was a – one of the stars of the show was going to be on a talk show to promote it, and they did a lot more than you ever really think about. My job was to go get – pull a clip from the show for them to show on air. Mm -hmm. So when they go, let's see a clip from this week's show, the person responsible for that is somebody who should not be working out there at all, an unpaid <laughs> intern like me. Mm. And so they're like, pick five funny clips out of this show. And sometimes it's hard because they have to stand alone. They can't be – because there's so many times – and I realized this working there was, man, so many times the jokes are – related to the situation of that episode and to be able to pull a one minute or less usually standalone funny clip that is funny just for being funny sake without much setup is really hard to do and i had to pull five of those send them to my uh immediate bosses to get them approved then i had to take it to their bosses and they would pick they would make sure those were okay and then they would send their top three to the top guy and he would pick one and now if he didn't like it, any of those, it came all the way back to me and I had to find five new clips. And it's already hard enough sometimes to find five funny things on a sitcom. Uh -huh. Right. And those seventies writers were great. Anyway, so that was my job was to like find those clips. But with that I, I got the perks of um going to the tapings at the table reads and the mm -hmm. tapings each week. And the way they do it, they do a table read in the morning for the following week's show, and then that night they film the current week's show. So Friday morning you're getting next week's script to test it out so they have a week to work. Because those writers are amazing. They're they're writing constantly, and even at mm -hmm. the tapes, the tapings, excuse me, they are writing new jokes and new ideas to try to like punch up something once they hear the audience how they have to laugh. Mm -hmm. And oh, that was so cool to get to take all that in. And I, I, honestly, it was a great experience. I learned a lot really fast those semesters I was out there. But the other great thing about that, being a college student, it was free food because there was craft services for all the people that work there. In Hollywood, actors don't eat. They just smoke. And uh, they don't, but not all of them. But those guys, like, they don't eat. They don't have time, and they, they can't eat a lot of food. So mm -hmm. here I am. I'm just, like, eating all this free sushi and all kinds of stuff. I mean, I learned how to really eat. Well, Jim Gaffigan was one of the actors that would eat, and he and I became friends over a series of working there because we'd always, I don't think he didn't know who I was, didn't know my name, but we always looked for each other there. And it was like, hey, if you're eating, I'll eat. So we're not just the guy that's like. <laughs> that, oh my God, that's great. I know. And with how much comedy Jim does about food, it's great to know that I had so many meals there. But there was, I mean, because he was on a lot, he was he was a guest on that <laughs> season. So it was season six. He played the, the, the grocery uh, best stalker, run. right? Was he you a grocery what? stalker on there? Um, I don't know. I know that he was, whenever uh, Ashton Kutcher's character had to work at a restaurant because he... Oh, that's right. Man. Yeah. And Jim Gaffigan was, his, was the boss, and he was so great. But he and his wife would be there a lot. And Anyway, I remember one Saturday, or one Friday night at a taping, he came up to me. We're standing there eating our sushi and stuff, and he's like, hey, man, did you know last week when we were here and we were standing by that guy to get food and he had a leather jacket on. Do you remember it? And I was like, yeah, I kind of remember. And he said, he said he had all those people with him. I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, somebody, they told me that that was Usher. And I was like, what? Because sometimes celebrities would come mm -hmm. and watch tapings and stuff. And I was like, Usher. And he's like, yeah, like the singer Usher. And I was like, wow. And he goes, do you know who that is? 
And I said, no. And he goes, me neither. <laughs> that's and great. That's kind of a weird story. Used to I tell that story, and I'd be like, and the guy that I was having that conversation with ended up being Jim Gaffigan. So mm-hmm. I was I was constantly meeting and talking to people without knowing who they were, I'm sure. But uh, he was so he was so cool. That was a total name drop story. But I I love Jim Gaffigan. He's cont- continues to be so funny, and uh, from from all the things I've seen him do and the times I've seen him do stand up, he uh, has this genuine realness to him that that's great. So, so he's that was a long story. Oh, I think I totally off. No, you're shot. fine. I actually had a question about that because um, that '70s show Marcy Carcy was the producer. Did you yes. meet Marcy Carsey? Yeah, yeah. So it was Carsey, Warner, Amanda Bach that ran it. So Warner and Carsey that were famous for Roseanne, Cosby Show, so many greats. Mm-hmm. Um, and their same group also produced films and movies like the Brady Bunch movie and um, uh, Wayne's World. I think some of them were. I'm mm-hmm. thinking. I'm thinking of the right group. Marcy Carsey was. I barely. I, I know. I talked with her a few times. She uh-huh. would never remember me. And I always <laughs> say, I hope they don't, because I'm sure I made a fool of myself. Uh-huh. But, um, but yeah, they were all. It was at the time. It was Carsey Warner Mandebach. Oh. And then, and then because it was Carsey Warner, then Carsey uh-huh. Warner Mandebach, and then it was just Carsey Warner again uh-huh. after it. But Marcy Carsey was great. Very uh, strong and smart in that business, and was so skilled at what she did and brought together people with a lot of stuff that became a television legend, legend to legendary television. Yeah. I think she worked as an NBC page and she worked with Johnny Carson, which was awesome. Oh, wow. And all the way up. Have you ever forgot to talk with her? I have not. We'll have to. Hey, yeah. Marcy, if you're listening, come be on the Hope's podcast. <laughs> That'd be awesome. There. But she, she's done a fantastic interview with uh, Mark Malkoff. I don't know if you listen to um, the Carson podcast, but... I'm going to have to. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. What do you believe sets Steve apart from other comedians? Steve Martin from other comedians? I, I think he's been able to... I don't know. He's been able to resonate with whatever audience he's at and uh, he's in front of and I, I've watched him on old SNL clips I've watched old comedy things I've watched him live when he does his bluegrass show he still does a lot of comedy mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun people are like oh I wish he was doing stand-up again but yeah he's doing it it's mixed in with his comedy and well now he's doing tours with uh with Martin Short and it's amazing you get all the goods you get Martin Short and him doing comedy together they do some fun bits and then he does his bluegrass stuff as well, and it's so good. It, the only thing is, like, I want to see more of all of it. It's like you have this whole modge podge of his whole career in front of you, and it's like, I love all of it. I want to see a whole two hours of just this part, and then a whole two hours of just this part, and instead of, you know, because it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to highlight all that great stuff. Um, what, what makes him stand out to me is just his ability to redirect in a joke and there's a lot of comedians that can do that and stuff, but he continues to surprise, and I love, I think that's what I love, that simple setup of a joke, and then he takes you in another direction, or you don't know when the punchline is going to come, and uh, I was watching, he said, I think I was watching recently, the last time he was on Letterman, and uh, he was talking with him, and he said, I really want to, several times in the interview, he kept setting him up to do something, you think he's going to give him this, 
he wanted to give him a nice gift. And they open the curtains and slowly turns into like Price is Right. He's like, I'm giving you some luggage. And it's like this funny thing, like pack up your stuff and get out. You know, it was all a joke. But he keep he keep coming back and setting up. And at one point, part he's talking to to David and he says, you know, I was. He's like, you've been so great and you're so welcoming and kind to so many people. And I was just backstage talking with the rest of the crew and talking about how great you are. And they were saying how they can't wait to meet you someday. And like even then, he like throws this curveball joke. Like you <laughs> think it's like he's still painting this picture of, you know, the the, the joke is David Letterman's a, a jerk and doesn't talk to them. And it offsets. It's a simple joke, but I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. I can't think of other examples right now, but I think that's one thing that I just I love his his ability to do something so wacky and crazy and physical, but then he can also be very subtle, and he's hitting. Everybody has a different thing that makes them laugh, and that's what's so great. Uh, about comedy comedy and i think comedy and laughing and crying are so close related to each other because different things can trigger somebody into crying or laughing and sometimes they overlay you can laugh so hard you cry you can cry so hard about something you end up laughing and it's such a weird little fragile part that reveals a human soul that kind of gets overlooked because you think of a joke joke maker that comedy, uh, joke maker is that thing, you jokey joke maker, <laughs> as being something to, to just like, you know, shy away from. But it's really an important service, I think, that funny guys do. And I love that uh, my um, my life would be robbed if I had not have discovered uh, Steve Martin and, and that style, because it really did shape a lot of and I try, I'm not trying to, I never try to really imitate him or anything like that, but I've been influenced and I'll have people stop me afterwards. They're like, man, it's like watching, you're like, a, you could, you're like Steve Martin's son or something like that. And it's the nicest compliment. I always tell people, it's like, well, you want my kidney? I mean, that's the nicest thing you could ever say to me. And for some reason, my biggest response is giving them an organ. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> and while I've never tried to be an imitator and stuff, he has influenced me greatly. I'd be lying to say that he, he didn't. And, uh, and I'm thrilled at that. I, I'm on it. I'm, I'm excited because in the next couple couple of weeks, um, I'm getting ready to do Bright Star. Is his musical he did with Edie Brickell, which is a beautiful, beautiful music that they did on some records together. And they turned it into a song with a great, great story. I mean, they turned it into a excuse me. They turned it into a Broadway musical that ran, and now uh, it's coming to Oklahoma with uh, Lyric Theater of Oklahoma is putting it on, and they've asked me to do a half hour of banjo pre-show comedy music stuff before the show starts so the museum is partnering with them to promote it and i get to go out for a half hour at 10 performances of bright star and do banjo and uh it's like the nicest honor in the world because people know that i like steve martin they know i play the banjo and i could be if they think i'm a poor man steve martin to come and do their show then that's fine with me <laughs> um i'm not going to be imitating him or anything like that i might be telling some of my stories and i will probably use the joke about how I have his signature on the restraining order because that's just a good go-to. But um, but it's really an honor to get to do that. That's awesome. So I want to kind of shift more to your career, but kind of staying in the mix of Steve Martin, someone from your hometown does a comic of you. Do they often joke huh. about your uh, your love of Steve Martin? Yes, yeah. <laughs> So it's funny. We were just this morning. They, he just did, and I have got a bunch of them out of my car. Um, Tom Simonton is his name. 
He's an amazing artist, a great painter, a great um, uh, Oklahoma artist, and he also he did comic books for uh, quite a while. Now he draws comics weekly for my hometown newspaper, the Minko Millennium. And he started incorporating me into his uh, sketches and stuff, and he will work in several times, th two or three times, he's drawn Steve Martin into a scene with mm -hmm. me because they know that. Actually, I've got it sitting over here. I'll have to show you <laughs> this picture that they gave me. <clears throat> I'm showing you all these things that you can't show your listeners. I'll, I'll, I'll take picture. a picture and, or something, <clears throat> screenshot it or something. You, I can send you a better picture. Yeah. Okay, so so they, they framed this. This was a picture that he made that was just kind of advertising the Minko Millennium. But I'm surrounded by Jerry Seinfeld, Woody Allen. I don't know, depending on that, if I had to cover up his face uh, <laughs> or not. Uh, Laurel and Hardy, David Letterman, and Steve Martin there. Uh, with an arrow through his head, which is, is so cool. And then Sandra Bullock. I don't really know Sandra Bullock. No. I mean, she does some funny comedies. Mm -hmm. wasn't be my first idea of uh, female. I would have, you know, a Carol Burnett or a Lucille Ball. Mm -hmm. Now, if Tom Thompson's listening, I'm not trying to insult him. I just was surprised with Sandra Bullock into the mix with Laurel and Hardy. But, hey, you mm -hmm. know what? It's, the, it's a one of a kind because I can guarantee I'm the only one that has a picture that – that has both Laurel and Hardy, Sandra Bullock, and Woody Allen in cartoon form. <laughs> Probably. With me, with me holding a sign that says Miko Millennium on it. I'm almost 99% sure I'm the only one that has that. Pretty. Pretty. That's pretty sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I want to... Uh, I was watching something on your YouTube, and I saw that you met Conan. What was that for? Conan O'Brien. Okay, so... He came when I about I mean, it's been over ten years now that I've been doing uh, TV regularly. The NBC affiliate's sister station, KAUT, named after Gene Autry because uh, Gene Autry started the station in the early eighties. Uh, I was hosting a comedy show on the weekends. We'd host the movie myself and my friend Ryan Belgar, and. Conan O'Brien came to town whenever he was going to inherit the Tonight Show for that short. Yeah, it was very short. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, he to promote it, they hit all the cities, and they came to Oklahoma, and he we did all kinds of stuff. We had like a pep band there. We had a big banner for him to run through, like it was a football game and stuff. And it's, not to say people were grumbling, but everybody's kind of like, "What are we really doing?" You know. But it's it struck such a chord that he spoke about it in a national interview on CNN. He said, "I went to all these." stations and in some places i'm treated like a crook i'm being like searched for you know for weapons or something and not cared about at all and he wasn't acting like he deserved something special but he was just like and then you go to places like oklahoma where they've got a pep assembly for me and they're being so kind it's like those are the places that are like doing it right or something like that and it was so cool mm -hmm. um and he also i found this out loves popcorn he loves it, and so they had two popcorn machines that a day, just so the whole place smelled like popcorn, and he was loving it. And we were all like, really? And at the end of it, his assistant came back in and said, Conan would like a few of the bags of popcorn, if that's okay. So we, like, packed up all these <laughs> popcorns, and he took them the with popcorn. him, he ate them with him. Yeah, mm -hmm. he loves it. So I don't know how uh, Joe Kozlowski at Channel 4, the promotions director there, found out that he loves popcorn. I mean, it's genius. Anyway. How? How did he find that out? I don't know. Uh, but... With, with that, I got to do, so all that to say is he 
filmed a few things, and we held this banner that he was supposed to run through. Ryan and I, the two movie guys, is what we were then, and the banner didn't rip. We didn't have it like pre-ripped, and he just hit it and just fell down, and he turned around at us and went, what's wrong with you? And all these cameras were on us, so we had this great footage of us doing it. So we kind of built this skit around, and we got to meet him a couple of times at a meet and greet thing. But oh, really? We built this whole little sketch about us beating Conan and uh, the real story of what happened behind it. And Ryan was so distraught. He climbed up on the tower and was going to jump and I caught him. And then we ran into Conan again. And it was really a funny little thing. So we, in a backwards way, got him to star on our show without him yeah. really knowing that he did it. And that was, uh, that was 10 years ago this past week. Yeah. That that oh happened. my That's God. Crazy. Oh. But, it, but, but it was on national news. That clip yeah. ran through that banner. And so I had friends in Houston, my family members in Houston that saw it. And they're like, we just saw you with Conan O'Brien. He was mm-hmm. trying to run through a banner, and he, it didn't work. And I was like, yeah, that's us. Yeah. Oh, oh, my gosh. I didn't even realize he was in Oklahoma at that time. I loved, I was really obsessed with his show at that time. Wow. Yeah. Did you go see, did he, after the show, stop all that all the NBC mm-hmm. back and forth and stuff, he did his live tour for a year. I didn't see it. Oh, I was. I wanted to so bad, but I did see him recently in November for his um, uh, the stand-up tour that he's doing now. Or I guess he's finished with it now. But yeah. Yeah, we did. We uh, I saw him in Tulsa when he came through, and Reggie Watts uh was did music and comedy in the middle of it too, and that was really cool. It was a great night. Big fun, great night, and then surprise everybody with Hanson. He got Hanson together, and they came out and they did. They played and did part of the song there. And so he catered it. He catered it to every place he went. Smart guy, and I knew that took a lot out of him emotionally and physically just to do that kind of a tour. Mm-hmm. But uh, it solidified him with his fans and what oh, yeah. he what he can do for forever now. So the documentary <laughs> of that, the yeah. bits that I've seen, like of of the that stand-up is just it's so funny so. Oh, oh yeah and it's incredible that it happened too mm-hmm. i i love it i, I mean it. i think it's great he was he's a real big inspiration mm-hmm. too from his writing that style and he had that way of that he could steve martin go back to steve martin like he steve martin would do this uh he was kind of imitating the lounge singers of the day like the early 70s and that by, by the late 70s, those, those Vegas, like, oh, I'm the really big show and I'm really great. And that became that Steve Martin voice. Everybody was like, oh, I'm a wild and crazy guy. And it really isn't. It was the epitome of this guy who thinks he's really cool and swarmy and stuff. And it was based on those, like, hey, welcome to Vegas. Uh, hey. And it's, like, so comical to think about. But there were guys that legitimately, and probably still do, that to, you know, talk like that to do these big shows that think they're so great. Conan had a similar thing where he will kind of do his... He'll act kind of like a jerk, but it's still likable and charming because you know he doesn't mean it because he's he's such a sincere, <laughs> funny guy. But also, but he can do that without having to say, "Just kidding, I'm really a nice guy." And and so to be able to do that without just coming mm-hmm. off as, and he's not nice. He's he's kind of mean. It's yeah. never mean. It's just always so funny. Even the back and forth between he and uh, Andy Richter and stuff. Uh, he has a, a a way of doing that kind of a pompous, that pompous, self entitled. Yeah kind of thing. And that's the thing that Steve Martin will still do that I still love mm-hmm. is that he'll still act like he's such a great celebrity whenever he does his um and he is is a thing. He he is a major, major celebrity. And so when he does his when I saw him do his bluegrass tour, he's like, I'm gonna take a break now and go and Google myself. 
and see what's being said about me while the band uh, while the <laughs> band plays and that kind of stuff. Or he'll come back and I'll say, I did, uh, one of the jokes he did, he was doing for a while at his uh, bluegrass tour was, oh, I just came from the bathroom and I saw a sign that said, all employees must wash hands. And I thought, thank goodness, I'm not an employee. Yeah. And it's just so, again, the, the misdirection, but also uh-huh. this pompous attitude of I'm better than you, but you know he's not. He's not, uh-huh. doesn't really think that. And um, I, I just, I love, I love that fake, that faux celebrity um, mm-hmm. thing, because he's kind of throwing it on, he's throwing on those celebrities still that that are legitimately that way. They think that they're better than other people. And yeah. uh, I just think it's fine to shine a light on that in a simple way. Mm-hmm. I do feel like that, especially with Conan, he is a student of comedy himself. You can see, like, yeah. the influences of all of that. And he's mentioned some really obscure people. Like, he's mentioned Jack Benny on his show, like, twice. And yeah. he's like, who the hell knows who Jack Benny is? And I'm like, me. That's me. Right. And, and Jack Benny had that, he was, yeah, he was doing that early mm-hmm. uh, deadpan since, but he had this connection with the audience. It's mm-hmm. like, you get it. They don't get it. And, um, it's not Jack Benny, but somebody. Well, maybe it was Jack Benny. I'm not trying to compare myself to that, but I, but I will, I will try to harness some of that energy sometimes when I'm doing the morning show that I do with mm-hmm. the the co-hosts I have on this local TV show. And when they don't get a joke or something like that, used to just discourage me. And then I realized, wait, the people at home are watching, mm-hmm. and some of them might be getting it. So mm-hmm. then I could just have a little bit of confidence. And then I play off of that. And I look at the audience kind of like help me, you know, mm-hmm. save me. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. and uh, it became really kind of fun that way. I don't know if my co-anchors liked that when they found out that I was doing it. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, the Jack Benny style is great. I, I tell you, another one of my biggest comedy influences is um, Buster Keaton. Oh, yeah. I, I, I adore his style and the, his look to the camera it seems like he's from another he's from another world and another time mm-hmm. and i remember in film school finally paying attention to some i'd seen some of the stuff you know the, mm-hmm. the house falls through and he's there mm-hmm. the physical thing of it, but i never really paid attention to his subtlety and his face in a time where especially in early film the expressions were really big and the makeup was really bold because they had to get to get through that film it had to be and people were coming from theater this is the first time a foray into that all the actions were really big. And while he did do some big physical stunts and things, he had this subtle stone face of help me or I don't know what I'm doing. And you just love, you couldn't help but love the guy. And I love that. And, and there were comedians that carried that on. Danny Kay, he had that kind of ability too, to be charming and funny and stuff like that. But he had the subtlety of his face that he could do. Um, that was just so, uh, that was so iconic and timeless. And those jokes will always be funny. That, you could show yeah. some of those things. The General is my favorite Buster Keaton uh, film. And those scenes where he's on the train and, and when he's trying to do that stuff, and he's just look, all this crazy stuff is happening. And the paradox of the, or the, uh, the contrast of his expression with his surroundings is what is funny. And that's what, like Steve Martin will always say, chaos in the midst of chaos is not funny. Chaos in the midst of order is. And so to to go in and to do things wrong and backwards and loud and big when the rest of the world is all organized and neat and tidy works. And if the world is crazy and busy and all this other stuff, if you show up and you're still in the midst of chaos, then it's funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, that has really inspired me a lot too, to just sit and react 
in whichever way, in whichever way is possible. I feel like I'm jumping all around the place. I hope I'm giving you some answers. That you <laughs> You're fine. You and your brother have been working on an amazing thing called Lazy Circles. Um, yes. Can you describe what that is for people that have no idea? Yes. Lazy Circles is a single-camera style comedy, which <laughs> we tell that to a newspaper when we were promoting a screening of it. And they took it as, they shot a whole movie with just one camera. And it was like, well, the idea of single camera comedy is the idea of the opposite. It's not a sitcom. It's not multi-camera where there's a live audience or, or they're all playing that way. It's like one camera moves around like, like you would film a film or something like that. I always think it's funny. So it's a single camera comedy, but we use more than one camera. Um, to <laughs> <laughs> Don't catch me on this. People are like, I saw two cameras there. That was not a single camera. Um, single camera style comedy uh, about the small small towns with big happenings based on our hometown of Minko. It was shot in Gautier, Oklahoma, which is very hard to find on the map, but it's there somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and it's based on experiences and people that we've grown up around, and but also just things that anybody can relate to if they've ever been in a small town or have family in a small town or lived in a small town, whether it was Oklahoma or any other place. Um, it's, and it's more about just like uh, personalities and and just comedy. We, my brother Marcus is also a lover of comedy and Steve Martin in the same way. And we just want to make something just funny. And right now especially, there's so much angst and there's so much divide and stuff. And we don't want to not highlight what's important and bringing people together. But we want to bring people together with something. And we started this before years ago before uh, a lot of the stuff was heightened that we kind of hit on and resonated with people were like, wow, you really made this topical. And I was like, it's not, not really. It's, and we had other people say, oh, it's really timeless. So I guess I haven't answered your question. What it's about is <laughs> small town. It's a day in the life of a small town that almost looks like a promotional video for come visit this small town. Or are you tired of the big city? Come visit Gautier. And in that town, there are uh, there's a mayor who is causing lots of problems. He's fired the police department. And he's taken on the role of the police officer because he thinks we're adults. We don't need police. And that came from, there was a time in my hometown that somebody actually believed that. We don't really need police. We're adults here. We right. can read stop signs that say stop. That's, they didn't say that. That's incredibly it. Oklahoma. <laughs> well, and, and it's not to make fun of anything. It's but, just the yeah. idea of, like, we don't need to waste money on, do we need to waste money on this? Well, it's not right. that. They're not thinking about the whole aspect of it. They're it is a small town. Yeah, it's a small town thing. Like, it's a, it's a problem with funding and stuff. Right. But with that is, people in those small towns take care of each other so mm -hmm. much. You mm -hmm. might disagree about things like, politics or dare say the football team that they support <laughs> which is even bigger than politics as much as they wouldn't say um but you're still going to help that person at the end of the day mm -hmm. and it's weird because for and when i lived in la and stuff people were like oh you're from oklahoma they thought like several things they thought like well everybody was racist there or everybody and this is that's strong stuff to say and honestly while i have i'm sure growing up around different kinds of divide on those things i never witnessed anything personally that showed that as much as whenever I lived in California I actually saw mm -hmm. things in front of me I was like whoa mm -hmm. like 
it's a yeah. You know, why so is that little, accepted? Why is that acceptable? Yeah. Right, and, and then they think that. They, and I was like, honestly, I'm not and I'm not to downplay it because those mm -hmm. those problems are are big there. But they looked at it as the small town, you know, or these small towns that don't know anything, or they're not educated, or they're traveling in horse and buggy still, and all these things. That nothing mm -hmm. against people who are traveling in horse and buggy. <laughs> There's Amish that are listening to your podcast. <laughs> what can they technically? <laughs> If they're Amish, if they're if they're breaking Amish, <laughs> uh, um, hope we're covering a lot of ground. I hope you censor all this stuff to make me sound smart. Um, so the show follows the mayor that does a bunch of that causes a lot of problems. It follows a weatherman who's a town celebrity. So I'm from Minko, but north of us is Yukon, and Garth Brooks is from Yukon, and there's a big water tower there that said "Home of Garth Brooks" on it, and it still does. My whole life, when I was a kid, I thought. Garth Brooks lived in the tower because it said home of Garth Brooks on it. I was like, oh, the guy named Garth lives in that. Love it. The 1967 softball champs. Yeah. From UConn. Um, and so we have the hometown hero that's kind of like that. Carl Storm is a weatherman. And in Oklahoma, weathermen are like, you know, they are heroes. They are superheroes. And so he's this uh, small town meteorologist guy. Well, he's not really a meteorologist. He doesn't know. He just guesses the weather, essentially. He uses a farmer mm -hmm. uh, ideas that his he's a farm kid who his dad used you know like smelling smells like it's gonna rain and and he's usually just about as accurate as the guys his comp competitors with all the bells and whistles um his competitor we got robert picardo from star trek voyager okay. and several other shows wonder years he's been on the orville a few episodes of the orville um and so much more great great mm -hmm. friend and actor and uh, he graced us with his presence and shot a little scene for us he's the um the weatherman that competes with him. And Oklahoma audiences really connect with that because they see that happen here. And the people that have shown this to outside of Oklahoma, they're like, oh, this is so entertaining and stuff. But they're like, I never really thought about how Oklahoma has different weather than we do, you know? Yeah. And like in some places in California, and Steve Martin did a movie called The L.A. Story where he was a, yeah. he was a Harris K. Telemacher. He was a weatherman in California, and it was like the biggest joke because it's like, it's always beautiful weather here. Why do you need a weatherman is the idea. And so in Oklahoma, it's different. Yeah. So there's that. So I got to age up to play a man in his late 80s, and uh, that was crazy. That was a lot of time in the chair. And some of it turned out pretty good. Sometimes you could see the makeup on my face. So it was like, ugh. But, you mm -hmm. know, we, we self-funded the whole thing. Marcus funded the whole thing. Um, and then the other character I play is Nadine Chitwood. Nadine is the town busybody librarian and volunteer at the senior center, and she causes a lot of problems. And it's my favorite character. I never thought that I would... That, that would be the favorite character I ever got to play. And it, <laughs> yeah. She wears a wind, wind suit that swishes. She has a neck brace she's had for 15 years since a car crash. She said she put on the neck brace and, for, and has been wearing it for 15 years and never looked back because she can't. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the, that's a, that was a lot of fun to do that character. And that's kind of been the breakout one that people really like. Mm -hmm. And so with that, we use a lot of local. Marcus, my brother, also plays the... Uh, the deputy, and uh, the, he, he ran camera, so he kind of is off camera with Nadine. And the whole idea is it kind of jumps around with all these townspeople and breaks off into this through-line story for each episode, plus uh, the whole series. We have 10 episodes kind of sketched out that we're hoping to produce. Coming up soon, we, we hope to get launched with that. But, um, but, <laughs> but then everybody else we used were, for the most part, there's a couple actors, but for the most part, we used locals. We used real mm -hmm. people playing themselves, telling their real stories, and they knew what we were doing, mm -hmm. and they knew what they were supposed to do. But we were like, just change the name. If you were going to say, just say 
the town's Gaucher. Well, because it was. That's what mm-hmm. we're saying. And um, and it was so cool because we got a lot of breakout, really fun characters, farmers and mailmen mm-hmm. and the newspaper lady who told real stories. And we had scripted some stuff, and then we started listening to what they said. We're like, this is better than what we could have come up with. Mm-hmm. So it was great. And uh, we're hoping that it's going to be possibly online or available uh, sooner than later. And I don't know what that date is, but mm-hmm. we're working on it. Somebody's going to kind of have that distributed online. Um, we had a big screening for it in April last year and a great, we overflowed a theater in Oklahoma. So it was cool. The, the coolest thing about it is it's a squirrely little comedy, but it's making people in Oklahoma, in LA and in Vermont and New York at these places we've screened it all laugh at the same thing at the same time. And they don't know what they all have in common. And I think that's a starting point for conversation. And I'm not saying that like, Oh, you, you laugh the same as somebody that believes this or that thinks this politically different than you. Oh no, then I can't like something. We're in this thing where you draw a line and you're on this or you're on this. And it's important to be convicted to what's important and where you harness that belief. But we have to have to start having these conversations because if we just keep building up our own walls, we're not going to function as a society. And hopefully that will get people to open their, yeah. their mind up a little bit more and, mm-hmm. and think on either side of things. Again, I'm not trying to water down real important issues. Yeah. Trying to make up. <laughs> okay. What we're doing is like, Mm-hmm. saving the world here but it's a starting point for people mm-hmm. to have some conversations because mm-hmm. it got people um in in california stuff like i just didn't i hadn't really thought about people in oklahoma being like me and i'm seeing people like me or people that i know that i like and it was cool mm-hmm. for the oklahoma audiences to see like oh uh they're we're laughing at the same stuff and that's what's so cool i can't wait to reveal to the world that they've been laughing at the same things for the few people that have seen it so <laughs> So it's a TV series. Is that like, is that um, an option or something that can be picked up? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the idea. Right now we're kind of looking at, we have a manager, uh, Kevin Herrera, uh, with The Machine in L.A. is working with us on uh, talking and showing it to people. And we've had a lot of good feedback. Christian Chenoweth watched it and really liked it and gave us a nice review. And, uh-huh. uh, um, uh, well, and... And a lot of other people have, mm-hmm. have, have watched it too. Felicity Huffman from Desperate Housewives, and so mm-hmm. she watched it and uh, gave us a nice little quote. My, my, and the one I'm excited about is um, uh, William Sanderson, who played Larry uh, from Newhart, Larry Daryl and Daryl oh. from the Newhart show. He uh, connected with us on Instagram and has become kind of an Instagram friend, and he watched it and, and gave us his encouragement. And it was so cool um, to hear that from him because we were really inspired by Newhart. Uh, we loved it because we always felt like in our little town was kind of like Newhart. And a lot of people could watch Newhart and feel that way. So we wanted it in a mm-hmm. way, it doesn't look or feel necessarily like Newhart, but it has the same kind of quirky characters in a small town that anybody can relate to. And like, oh yeah. I, That's I like an interesting that. point because like I have trouble connecting with Newhart because I find he's very funny, but I think it's very much a product of its age. And so like, that does kind of make, ring a bell with me. It does have similar uh, structure, I guess. Not structure, that's the wrong word for it. But it has the same kind of feel, but it's like an updated version of that I feel like I can connect with. That's awesome. Well, yeah, and we didn't set out to do it necessarily that way, but it was really funny that we debuted it. The first festival we got into was uh, the ITV Fest that was held in Vermont. And so we... It was so weird that that's where it debuted, and we got to go. And we even went to the Newhart Hotel, the exteriors where they filmed 
they of course taped it in LA, but um, but the exteriors were shot in a little town in Vermont. That hotel's still there. We went and Ooh. toured it. Saw they had the sign from it was called the Stratford Inn on the TV show. They had Larry and Daryl Daryl's pictures <laughs> and stuff like that. And and they said Bob Newhart. They had a picture, an autographed picture of him to the end. They said it's like something like take good care of my inn. It's all yours or something. But he's never been to visit. They said one time he was 45 minutes away and he wasn't able to make it. Oh. He's still yet to visit. So I've got one up on him. I've actually been there. Awesome. <laughs> That's but, uh, cool. That's awesome. We're hoping. We're hoping to follow. There'll be a little bit more interest uh, stuff than that kicked up. My brother is getting married at the end of this month, so that's kind of his focus right now, oh, which is good. I didn't know he was getting married. That's awesome. Yes, he's getting married, and then um, after that, we're going to start creating that. And we have another pilot of a different type of series that mm -hmm. we're uh, hoping to, to shoot as well. Same kind of weird comedy, but just a different. A different vein. How did you get Picaro to be on your film? How did you meet him? I he doesn't know he's in it. No, um, <laughs> he did. He was in Oklahoma doing a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. He was pseudolus a few years ago at City Repertory's production of that in Oklahoma, and I got cast as uh, Hysterium and to his pseudolus. So I got to do comedy with Robert Picardo every night. And that show, while it hasn't necessarily aged great it was kind of a tribute to the early vaudeville and burlesque shows um it's since kind of transferred into uh them using it as a chance for women empowerment and having the ver the roles reversed where the the men kind of do the funny burlesque side mm -hmm. and back and forth but um anyway it was kind of neat to do that classic comedy with bob picardo um that was based exactly like those old vaudeville on early shows. I mean, and I think Jack Benny was, Zero Mostel was in the stage show, um, not Jack Benny, Buster Keaton was in the film oh. version of it, mm -hmm. and uh, it was kind of the end of that golden early age of the early comedy vaudeville thing, was where stand-up and all that started. You had your fast-talking comedy back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you had your physical funny stuff, you had your singing, you had the burlesque pretty girls that would come out. And they packaged that all into a musical, and it was uh, it was a big hit in the '60s. Anyway, so I got to do that show with Picardo, and he's so cool, and we became uh, good friends. And he would he still sends me random texts here and there. My parents are beekeepers; he's always hitting me up for honey, which I owe him some honey. Oh, it's on the way. And so we stayed in touch. And I was working on this; we were working on it all the way back mm -hmm. during production of that. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who. Uh, John Hawk, who is also a mm -hmm. character in the show, and he said, you ought to ask him. I bet he would do it for you. And so I just asked, and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he shot a scene for us that gets to play into it and uh, has been a cheerleader for us from the beginning. So it's really cool, really cool. And uh, Barry Switzer, local Oklahoma mm -hmm. legend, and he coached the Dallas Cowboys and, of course, OU before that. He was our narrator, so it was mm -hmm. neat to have a couple names that doesn't help. That doesn't hurt at all, you know. Yeah, does never hurts. Never hurts. How are you? Uh, how are you passing Steve Martin on to your kids? Um. Well, they can't escape it because I'm <laughs> surrounded by some of that stuff. And it's funny because, like, I think when Henson, my oldest, when he was really little, we got uh, a book for him called Late for School. It's a Steve Martin song that they converted to a children's book mm -hmm. um, about a little boy who's late for school and have these great pictures at the very beginning of the book. It has a picture of Steve Martin. And so I'd be like, who's that? Like, Steve Martin. Like, oh, it was this fun little game. Mm -hmm. 
but then he was at an age where he was like learning words and stuff and he would call all books bibles he was just getting it and he'd be like oh that's a bible and I'm like well that's you know because he had his bible for mm-hmm. sunday school and then he had his book so one time my um in-laws were all over at the house and he walked in and he was like here's my dad's bible and it was a steve martin, <laughs> was a steve martin book and they're like uh-huh so i have well that wasn't purposeful but um <laughs> there's a they can't escape it, you know, they, right. and they, they've, they've seen some of the stuff he did. They've seen Three Amigos, mm-hmm. and uh, when I was little, when they were little, and I was shorter, no, when, I, when they were little, I used to tell them bedtime stories, and I couldn't think of anything. I would tell variations of Three Amigos, I don't know why, <laughs> to entertain myself, uh-huh. and so one night we were at a restaurant, and somewhere at the garage, I think, and they were in the playroom, they had a TV on it, it was showing Three Amigos, and Henson was just watching it. And I was not thinking about it at all. And later on, he's like, I know this. Why do I know this? And then he was like, and, and Aubrey's like, my wife, Aubrey, was like, why does he know what this is? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, oh, yeah, Dad tells us this. It's our favorite bedtime story. And I was like, I for- so, forgot about um, that. <laughs> so, yeah, they've been, they can't escape it either. Mm-hmm. And they play. My old, they have a banjo and ukulele, and they, they, they pick around and play. And uh, they're very, very talented. They play piano very musically. They can read music much better than I ever could and can. So uh, it's really fun and a joy to see that. They know that they know that I'm a big fan of uh, of Steve and Kermit and the banjo, and um, it's cool. Here's a artwork that Simon made for me years Aww. ago. For, there's a little banjo there, so it's cool. So you're doing like. Um... You've done a couple of banjo albums. Do you have a new one out? I know you had the Son of a Beekeeper. I do, and then I did a kids album. Uh, well, I say kids album. It's still for like all ages and stuff. But um, I did a, started a kids type show called Banjo Farm. That's uh, silly and weird and really inspired from a lot of like Muppety type music I grew up with, and uh, still it's still entertaining for adults. I try to. But mm-hmm. for kids, and when I say there's jokes for adults, obviously it's not like any windows or something like that. It's just like weird references of stuff that kids might not get, but mm-hmm. the parents do. And I remember always like, like, why is that funny? I want to know. And so I try to do some of that. But I'm working on another one. I don't know what it's called yet, but I'm starting to record again. And I'm trying to do some a project with my wife, uh, where she sings, and uh, we do some stuff together. So that will Sweet. be cool. First time. I know. It's like we were like, why have we never done this? And she's. Uh, you know, it's hard to get her booked. She's very busy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but anyway, that'll be kind of cool. I'll let you know when those are coming out. Perfect. Can't wait. Cross my fingers. Cool. Can't wait. Um, rapid fire question time. Favorite Steve Martin movie? The Jerk. Favorite Steve There's Martin's... <laughs> yes. Favorite Steve Martin song? Banana ban- <clears throat> Banana Banjo. It's a a song he wrote, uh, recorded in the 70s on Steve Martin Brothers' album. Favorite book written by Martin? Oh, I have to be born standing up. Mm -hmm. I really like Pure Drivel. I love Pure Drivel. It's hilarious. Uh, It's really hard to make me laugh on, like, a book, but that book definitely does that. It's timeless, too. Mm -hmm. The apology one is great. (laughs) Yeah. How many instruments do you play? Confidently three. Okay. Super confidently zero. (laughs) 
Yes. Piano, drum, accordion. <laughs> drum! Did not know you I mean, played drum. Yeah, no, sorry, well I did play the drums. I meant piano, banjo, accordion. <laughs> but I played drums in high school, so four. Nice! Um, I mean, um, I love drums. Gotta teach me sometime, from what you know. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite character that you do? Nadine. Nadine? The, uh, yeah, from Lazy Circles. What's to the- my, to, to my wife's chagrin. Oh. <laughs> What's the favorite song you've done on the banjo? Uh, uh the, mine? Yeah. Or you can list someone else's if that's easier. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Maybe. I don't like any of my songs after. By the time I record them, I'm so sick of them all. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I, I don't know. I, uh, I like Arthie's Empty Birdhouse. I wrote that about my grandma after she died, so I just said that one was my favorite. Yeah. But my favorite banjo song to play is probably Banana Banjo, the Steve Martin song. That's like, yeah, I just I like that one a lot. Uh, what are some of the comics that you've seen perform? Uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Conan, Mike Birbiglia, Jim Gaffigan. Oh, uh, I saw, who's the guy, he, he calls himself, I'm not fat, I'm fluffy, I can't think of his oh, name. Oh, Gabriel Iglesias. Yeah, I saw I saw him before he, like, went big. I saw him oh, wow. in college, and mm -hmm. before he got really big, I saw him in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Bob Nelson, I really like Bob Nelson, he, he was in a movie called Brain Donors, and with your love for Marx Brothers movies, you should watch Brain Donors, John Turturro. Yes, and, uh, I need to, I have Bob, not seen that yet. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I've heard, heard of it. it? Yes. It was by the, I think the Zucker brothers did it. The guys did like mm. airplane stuff and it, and it just didn't take, but mm -hmm. oh man, it's good. It's just like a Marx Brothers movie. They're not imitating the Marx Brothers, but the same mm -hmm. style. Uh, and, and Bob Nelson was kind of the Harpo character. I've met him a couple times and seen some of his shows. Um, uh, well, Tenacious D kind of counts. That, that's kind of comedy. Jack Black. I'm trying to think of any other comedian. I know I've seen some others, but oh, uh, man, I can't think of her name. I'm going to have to look her up. Uh, have you seen Bob Newhart? Oh, yes! I saw Bob Newhart! <laughs> He's my, yeah, that, that was it. That was the greatest thing. I got to see Bob Newhart. Um, and it, it was so good. And there was one time he was trying to remember a punchline to a joke, and he just kind of got confused. He was trying to think of, not a punchline, he was trying to think of like a setup of the DMV or something. And it was kind of like, it didn't really matter to the joke, but he was just trying to give a place and he couldn't think of it. And then he just was like, I, uh, and people were shouting out stuff like, the DMV. He's like, no, it's not that. He's like, he's like, hey, listen, I'm in my 80s, okay? Who cares? Everybody just cheered. He's like, I'm tired. <laughs> he was so, it was so fun. It was so funny. And mm -hmm. uh, it was really a treasure. I got, got to see him one night and the next night we went and saw Martin Short and Steve Martin together and back to back. It was great. Mm-hmm. That was, I remember I was working as an intern at the time and you were like, I'm going to see Bob Newhart. And I was like, I wish I could. <laughs> uh, I loved it. And I have friends that he, he uses a, uh, a big, uh, big band opener for his show and they play the. Oh my gosh. Like kind of a Sinatra style mm -hmm. singer or a Tony Bennett style singer head. And when he came and, Last year, I think he was in Tulsa, and I didn't even know, and I had some yeah. friends that got to play the band for him, and they got his picture taken with him, stuff, the guy, uh, good friends of mine that, that performed both uh -huh. the singer and the saxophonist, and I was like, oh, and I was 
was like, I, sh I, I was rethinking my whole life. I should have learned to play saxophone. So that could have been me to take that one picture. Do you ever do that? You're like, yeah. oh. Yeah. <laughs> what like, could oh, I have done goodness. to get into that situation? <laughs> Just for a picture I can Photoshop later? Yeah. No. But uh, yeah, Bob Newhart is mm -hmm. a, a hero. Mm -hmm. Really cool. I've been going back and listening to some of his early comedy and how simple and how, I won't say accidental, but how that just exploded for his career. Do you watch that Marvelous Miss Maisel? I don't, but I I really want to because it sounds like right up my alley. But it, I feel like it's your, it has a lot of, of that. And, and the, the, well, the Bob Newhart recordings plays a big role in the first Oh, really? First or second episode. Okay. He's not in it, but they reference it, and they reference mm -hmm. uh, some other performers than um, it's both really, ones that they make up, but it's, yeah. it's really interesting. It's really weird, like, I mean, it's not weird, but it's just kind of interesting to see that Bob Newhart had that kind of influence, because even in, like, Mad Men, like, they have, like, you hear him yeah. listening yeah. to that on, like, like, the first season, and I'm just, I was just like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that this was, like, a, like, culture-defining thing. Right. I know. And it, it happened so fast. Mm-hmm. Are you trying to think of her name still? <laughs> yeah, I'm finding other people that were born in the 1800s. It's not her. <laughs> oh. oh, Mary Lynn Rad, Rad, Rad... I can't say her last name. It's Mary Lynn... Raz, Raj, Scub. Raj, Scub. Okay. It's it's her. her. Okay, she, I don't know what she's been in. She's in uh, she's in uh, uh twenty four, and she's in a bunch of stuff. But oh, she's a really okay. funny comedian. She's in she's in a few episodes of the newer Arrested Development. So, uh, oh, okay. I'll have to find her in there. So, any favorite classic TV shows, then, since we're both TV nerds? Classic TV shows? Oh, man. I, I love Dick Van Dyke. I love, like, I love watching Lucy. There's some, uh, there's some, a lot of nostalgia there. Carol Burnett show, classic TV. I love that. Um, I, Bob Newhart, yeah, I love Newhart. I know that's, I don't know if it's classic, but, but I love the 80s Newhart so much. I think a lot of it was, my, I think my parents loved it and they watched it a lot. And that's kind of how you get into it. So there's, there's some nostalgia there. But but one of my favorite shows, and I love it, and I loved it before it became cool to love it recently like this, but I love Golden Girls. I think mm -hmm. the writing there is so good, and it was good. the last time a lot of those women from that time that could do it all, like B. Arthur could. She was a singer. She was on stage. She could do comedy. She mm -hmm. could do it all. And, you know, they incorporated all that into that show. Mm -hmm. And it was so uh, yeah. so, so uh, a weird off-put setup that shouldn't have worked necessarily. They always and it said, did. but it, yeah, such a hit. It was so and, good. Well, my brother started buying me the DVDs when they first started <laughs> releasing them, like almost I don't know, eight, fifteen years ago, before it became kind of like, Betty White just kind of blew up again. Mm -hmm. Everybody was like loving it and stuff. And now you can go to Target and find a Golden Girls T-shirt and stuff. And I was right. like, and I'm not trying to be all. I liked it before it was cool thing, cause I. But I remember. I think it also came from watching it with my grandma when I was a kid, which I should have been watching that. And my mom knew she'd be very upset. But uh, my grandma didn't get any of the, the the dirty jokes. She just thought that Rose was funny. She's like, I like that Rose because she's dumb like me. That was all my grandma always said. She's like, yeah, I know, but she's just funny. I like her because she's the dumb one. Uh -huh. <laughs> I never got on to uh, uh, all of the all the other stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, but but. 
talk about real classy, strong female performers. They were so good. They were so good. They were all very, favorite. very strong performers. Yeah. Um, now, this, this question pops into my head at random times. Do you think you look like Roy Orbison? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wear glasses. I can't really think of what he looks like other than with his glasses, but I get that mm -hmm. a lot. People will be like, eh, I think it's anybody with glasses. They're like, oh, yeah, you look you look like him. Um, I don't think I do, but I've been thinking about learning some Roy Orbison songs on banjo mm -hmm. just to capitalize on it. Oh, yes, you definitely should. <laughs> but I've had people find some pictures where my hair is, like, really, like, poofy and thick. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like poof it up banjo. a little. And <laughs> uh -huh. I, I was thinking about learning... Uh, Anything you want on the banjo, mm -hmm. just so I could. I would, I would like to see that. That would be okay. awesome. You gotta I'll post that. that on YouTube or something. You, you got it. You got you it. it. Yep. Oh, I don't think we're gonna get any better than that. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have run out of questions. So. Now I'm gonna ask you some questions. Okay. What's your social security number? Oh right? no. Do you have any credit cards? What's your uh, mm -hmm. password? <laughs> Pet's name. Mother's maiden name. No. Hope it's such a pleasure to get to be on your show. Oh my gosh. It has been amazing to finally talk to you. Um, when I was an intern, I was just timidly behind the camera being like... Oh, yeah. you were so great. And we, we miss having you around. I tell you what, you were so fun. And we're so excited to see all that you're getting to do. And this, this is great. How many episodes of this have you done? Um, This will be my eighth. Wow. So cool. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope I'm not the one that puts a nail in the coffin and it shuts it all down. Hopefully you'll have 800 more. After this, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, you got to get Marcy Carcy. Oh, yes, I do need to get Marcy Carcy. I don't even know what I would talk to her about, though, because, like, there's a, I think uh, Mark Malkoff talked to her for, like, an hour. And I don't know if, I've talked to you for about an hour, so I don't know if I could expand on anything more, but... Wasted a wasted a whole hour of your life talking to me, Hope. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh, I got to geek out about classic TV, so I'm not really complaining. <laughs> well, that's great. I appreciate you a lot. You're very talented. Oh, at, at what? But okay. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. I'm very talented at remembering useless facts about hey, classic man, TV shows. Too. I don't know my 50 states and capitals, but I could talk to you about <laughs> Gilligan's Island and and uh, Golden Girl all day long. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Yep. That, that accurately describes my life. <laughs> You're that friend. If somebody's ever on a game show, they'll be like, I could call them and they can help me. So we always have to have that precursor that you have to split the cash. If you call me when you're playing whatever the game show is, because you have this one obscure question about how many times did Dick Van Dyke fall over the sofa and they call you because they know that Hope would know it. Sure. Uh-huh. Sure, I know. Where he started the fall and then, like, he jumped out of the way mm -hmm. of it They used on. They used, like, three different intros. And so they would alternate them. What a clever way to make people watch. Like, mm -hmm. that was so innovative. Yeah, people would, so people would bet on what, what intro they were using. Really? Mm -hmm. I didn't know they rotated them. I thought it was like later on they changed it to this, and then later mm -hmm. on, they, so they rotated them. That, that's so that's so clever. Mm -hmm. How cool. Yeah. And awesome. All right. 
Well, I better let you go. You're getting okay. more and more phone calls. <laughs> I'd much rather do this. My interview with Lucas reminded me of why I fell in love with Martin. He had always been there. He was funny as a kid watching the Muppets, at 10 watching Cheaper by the Dozen, in middle school watching the Pink Panther, and as an adult pretty much watching everything he's ever done. He wasn't a kid like me when he entertained me. He didn't have to be my age. He was timeless. He was a classic. And it's because, like Lucas said, everyone laughs at something different, at different stages of their life. And Steve and good writers like Carl Reiner, that write for Steve, know that. They include that. And give a laugh per minute. More information about the Steve Martin Banjo Show is on the Banjo Museum Facebook. It will be on September 19th in New York City. Now, if you are interested in some of Lucas's banjo songs, you can find those in the iTunes store. And if you are in Oklahoma, stop by the Banjo Museum. One quote of Steve's I love is, Be so good they can't ignore you. If I ever get a tattoo, that'll be it. I say that because I can't really think of a way to end this, so someday I'll be so good at the podcast thing that I will have a better closer. I know I'm no Buck or Earl, or Martin or Hickman or Burl, I thought we were having a blast, but how'd you all form an angry mob so fast? leave a review, a rating, a message, just whatever you can on whatever app you're using to listen to this. It really helps. I know from personal experience and I really thank you for listening. I may not have a large audience because, well, loving the classics is kind of a niche thing, but I don't want these classics to die out. And that is why I need your help. Please like and share. This has been a Hope Sears presentation, darling. We're a little late, so good night, folks.